This morning, we're continuing in our summer sermon series on the book of Romans. And we are finishing that series within a series that the Reverend Dr. Tom Toole and I started two weeks ago. This is the third and final week. Looking at the things that God asks us to never forget, the essentials of our faith, the things that if all else falls apart, we absolutely want to remember these things. The first week we talked about how we want to never forget how much we need God. Last week, we talked about how we need to never forget that God will purpose all things for good. And this week, we are talking about how we want to never, ever forget that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Tom Toole is over in the contemporary service today, which means that I have the pleasure of joining you. I want to invite you to look to Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, And let us listen together for the word of God. This is Paul continuing on directly from our our service last week, talking about God's love for us in Christ Jesus. He says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. Will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, if you will, please join me as we pray for God's wisdom and God's light in our lives today. Lord, it is your voice that we seek It is your heart that we want to know. Please speak to us today. Set aside any distractions. Work through the imperfections of our speaking, of our listening, to make your perfect love known more clearly. Speak through me and speak through those who are worshiping together this morning. We want to know you better today than we did yesterday. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Several years ago, comedian Ellen DeGeneres made an observation about how children use their imagination to make their lives bigger and broader, and about how adults use their imaginations to make their world smaller and more confined. When children use their imaginations, 
they'll see a cardboard box and they will transform it into a spaceship that takes them to the moon where they meet aliens and make friends with them and then dodge shooting stars. When adults see a cardboard box, we imagine our backs going out as we break down that box to put into the recycling bin that we then have to lug out onto the street. Or maybe we might imagine the many trees that are being felled to make cardboard boxes just like that. Children are so great at being able to imagine the world as something beyond their exploration. But as adults, we start to use our imaginations to create smaller confines around our lives. Researcher and storyteller Brene Brown has done research on this phenomenon. It's called the fatalistic impulse. In one of her popular talks, Brene Brown asks the audience to imagine a scene with her and then to complete what happens at the end of the scene. It goes like this. A beautiful family of four walk out of their house in the suburbs and onto the driveway where their car is parked and clean and shining in the sun. The mother buckles in her toddler who is squirming while he tries to use his toy airplane to fly it around her head. And as she struggles to buckle him in, their middle school-aged daughter gets in through the other side and sits down in the back seat, promptly putting in her headphones. The mom signals to her and blows her a kiss, and the daughter waves her away a little bit, sort of a goodbye, sort of a don't bother me. And she gives a kiss to her toddler and shuts the door before giving a hug to her husband and saying, don't forget to be back by dinner to which her husband gives her a peck on the cheek and flashes that boyish smile which caused her to fall in love with him in the first place before getting in, reversing the car out of the driveway and pulling onto the road. She watches them as they drive down the road and head to that first intersection. What happens next? If you are someone who imagined that mother witnessing her family in a violent car crash, then you're in good company. About two out of, uh, two out of every three people imagine that tragic outcome. That reflex that many of us have to use our imaginations to see a tragedy or to imagine loss, that is the fatalistic impulse. Brown says this about that. She says, I used to stand over my two kids while they slept. And just as a profound sense of love and joy washed over me, I'd imagine horrible things happening to them. Car crashes, tsunamis. Do other mothers do this? I'd wonder. Or am I just unhinged? I now know, she says from my research, that 95% of parents can relate to my constant disaster planning. And listen to what she says at last. When we are overwhelmed by love, we feel vulnerable. So we dress rehearse tragedy. My friends, when we are overwhelmed by love, 
when we are elated with joy, we become suddenly aware of how these good things in our lives expose us to vulnerability and maybe to weakness. Because what will happen to us if we lose these good things we ask? And so we don't want to be vulnerable. And so in an effort to beat vulnerability to the punch, we imagine how we would survive if it was all taken away. We use our imaginations to dress rehearse tragedy. Brown notes from her research that if we practice this way of thinking week after week, year after year, then we as people are going to start to change. Joy will always lead to foreboding. Disappointment will become a lifestyle because it's easier to live disappointed than it is to just experience disappointment. We operate at a low-grade disconnection from other people, even the ones we love the most, because we don't want to expose ourselves to a meaningful connection that we might one day lose. And we do all of this because we don't want to count on good things being in our lives all of the time. We do all of this because we don't want to become vulnerable. We don't want to feel weak should these good things be taken away. Which makes our scripture passage for today really, really good to hear and a little slippery to hold on to. According to the Bible, according to our scripture, we are intended to have the best thing in the world, which is God's love and affection for us. We are intended to have the best thing in the world and to never, ever, ever, ever have it taken away. The message words verse 35 of our passage in this way. It says, do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There is absolutely no way. No trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love. Friends, nothing imaginable or unimaginable, nothing can separate us from God's love. This news in this scripture passage about God's love is elating and joyful news. And what do two-thirds of all humans do when they are given great news? We face our fatalistic impulse. We hesitate to rely on it, to appreciate it, to be grateful for it. 
we might have read this good news in scripture for years. We might have heard it from the pulpit for decades. But still, the Bible here says God's love can't be taken away from us for any reason. But we suspect we know better. Sure, maybe we can't be separated from the love of God by hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, but maybe, maybe none of those things are the things that we fear the most. Maybe the thing that we fear the most from separating us from the love of God is not outside of us. Maybe the thing that we fear the most in separating us from the love of God is inside of us, is our very selves. I can tell you, I feel pretty confident in God's omnipresence, so much so that I'm not worried about being separated from God by famine or from human authority because I know God is everywhere. But I'm not so confident in myself to be worthy of God's unwavering favor. I can very well imagine myself being separated from God just because of me. Because maybe I'm not good enough or smart enough or faithful enough. Maybe I don't listen closely enough. Maybe because I know that inside I could be better. Friends, it leads us to the question, What do we do when our fatalistic impulse about God's love is triggered from inside of us? What do we do when we rehearse the tragedy of God removing his love from us because we're not worthy of it, because we don't feel worthy of it? I really believe that this fatalistic impulse about our own value to God is why Paul writes this whole section. And I think it's why Paul starts his passage talking about condemnation. Because I believe that the biggest threat in creating distance between us and the love of God is our own feelings and perceptions of self-condemnation. In the NIV, Paul says in verse 33, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Paul was speaking at the time about the people outside of that new Christian faith who were criticizing this new way of Jesus Christ. He was talking about the Pharisees who used to be his friends who now ridiculed him and thought that he was a heretic. He was talking about the Roman authorities who would not really pay him the time of day as someone who was a believer with some authority and power. Paul was talking about all of these people who had the power to take away his life, how they, their condemnation was not going to withstand the love of God. Which means, if other people's condemnation, if their condemnation against us doesn't hold water in the face of God's love for us, 
And friends, what makes us think that our condemnation of ourselves will be any more persuasive in wrenching away God's love from us? It can't. It won't. If scripture says that no one can condemn us, then that means that we can't condemn us. We can't condemn ourselves away from God either. Let me tell you a story about self-condemnation and about the power of God's love and grace. There's a Lutheran writer and speaker named Nadia Bowles Weber. She was the founder of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado, and pastored that congregation for 10 years. And when people would become members of the church, House for All, Bowles Weber would make a point to tell them that at some point in time, either the church or herself or some other congregant was going to mess up and disappoint them. Not because they wanted to disappoint them or hurt them, but because the church and its pastor consist of humans that mess up. She would tell them this right at the beginning, right when they became members, when the time to be, be when the, so that when the time came for these new members, when they would feel hurt or disappointed by the church or by their pastor, they would have known right from the start, they would have committed right from the start to trying to stay and work it through. She did this because committing to be together, she believes, means committing to love and forgive one another, not just in the times that are easy and full of harmony, that's simple, but particularly and most importantly in the times that are challenging and full of conflict. So then she goes on to talk about in her second book, how love and grace and forgiveness are deceivingly soft words. She says, we imagine love and grace and forgiveness wrapping around us like a warm, limp blanket. But in reality, grace and forgiveness are more like blunt instruments than they are that blanket because experiencing love and grace and forgiveness more often stings than it soothes. She tells a simple story from her time as a pastor of House for All to illustrate this point. She talks about how difficult it was to balance her commitment to her congregation along with the growing requests to write and travel and speak. And she talks about her feelings of persistent fear and anxiety she carried around with her all of the time, fearing that she was going to let down her congregation, fearing that they would turn their backs on her, fearing that they would get fed up and resent her, condemn her for being so busy. And so she says that this fear and this anxiety, it drove her to balance more plates than she had hands to carry. One day, two of her congregants, they got engaged and they wanted to be married a year and a half down the road. But the first thing that they did was not book a venue or go dress shopping. The first thing they did was call her to get a date. They found a time. She put it, the date in her calendar. Everyone was happy and relieved. But six months later, 
Bowles-Weber realizes that her calendar had not been syncing up with her assistant's calendar. And it turned out that the wedding that she had promised to do was planned smack dab in the middle of when Weber was scheduled to be speaking in Australia for two weeks. Weber panicked. She called the organizers in Australia and asked if she could move the dates forward or backward by a week, seeing as it was still a year out, but they said no. They had already sunk $10,000 in promotional materials that could not be reprinted or redistributed. So then reluctantly, she called the couple and asked if they would be willing to move their date forward or backward a week. And they said no. Family had, and friends had already started to make travel plans. Deposits had been put down that weren't going to be able to be returned. So Weber called back the Australian organizers. What if, she suggests, she convinced another popular writer to come and speak in her place? But they said no. The Lutheran Church in Australia wouldn't ordain women. And they needed a woman Lutheran pastor like Weber who could speak with the authority that comes with holding an ordained position. And so she was trapped. Her self-condemnation pummeled her. This was the moment that she had always feared. The plates were falling. She wasn't good enough. She wasn't worthy of their love and admiration of their friendship. The bride texted her one night and said, this is the time, isn't it? Huh? (laughs) Said Weber. The bride said, this is the time when you will disappoint us. And Weber said, I think so. She says she was dying inside. She had forgotten that she had even said that when the couple had joined the church. But the next morning, there was an email in her box from that couple, and it said this, we are releasing you from your commitment to officiate our wedding. As much as this is painful, we understand why our pastor needs to be in Australia. We love you. And we forgive you. Bowles Weber broke down into tears. She says, and I quote, And the thing about love and grace, real love and real grace, is that it stings. It stings because if it's real, it means that we don't deserve it. No amount of my own movement or strength could have held those plates that I had stacked way too high. I tried and I failed and Jeff and Tracy suffered for it. And then they extended to me love, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness out of their own hurt and grace. She goes on and says, and receiving grace which I would say in receiving love is basically the best worst feeling in the world. I don't want to need it, she says. Preferably I could just do it all and be it all and never mess up. It may be what I prefer, but it's never what I need. 
I need to be broken apart and put back into a different shape by that merging of things human and divine, which is really screwing up and receiving grace and love and forgiveness rather than receiving what I really deserve. I need the very thing that I will do everything I can to avoid needing. Friends, we don't want to rely on God's love. We don't want to rely on God's grace. We don't want to rely on God's forgiveness because what if the day comes when these things that we come to rely upon, what if the day comes where they're suddenly not extended to us? But that's why it's so important for us to never forget our scripture for today. Nothing can hold us back from the unrelenting torrent of God's love that doesn't hang limply around our shoulders so much as it stings when it rains down on us. It doesn't sting because it itself is painful. It stings because it's hard for us to accept it, to embrace it, and to rely upon it. We can be scared to rely on God because we know that it exposes us to the vulnerability and weakness that comes with counting on someone or something. But friends, we need nothing to fear. Nothing, not one little thing, not real or imagined or tragically rehearsed. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Let's never forget it. Amen.